0: Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast. My name is Andrew Sill. We're talking all things aero episode two. For anyone that listened to episode one, thank you. We've made a few tweaks. The first one with hopefully this audio is going to be a bit better. We've moved location, changed the mic setup, and I think this is actually going to be a lot better. So thanks for joining us, episode two. We are stuck in the midst of this COVID-19 outbreak, and of course we still can't fly. And uh, I don't know about you out there, but I just can't wait to go flying. I I predict that as soon as we're allowed to go flying, we'll all be rushing to the nearest flying club. I can't wait for it to happen. Speaking of the COVID-19 update, I've been reading online, a few people getting upset with the uh, MAAA, the association out here in Australia that looks after all things aero modeling. Oh, they shouldn't have told clubs to shut down and all this kind of stuff. Well. My take on the matter is the MAAA and flying clubs are two separate entities. The MAAA doesn't own the clubs, doesn't really have a lot of control over the clubs. The MAAA looks after the flying activities, a lot of it associated with the insurance. So if you've been ringing up uh, the MAAA secretary and uh, giving him an earful, well, you best to stop it. It's a waste of waste your time and a waste of your breath. Uh, I've dealt with the MAAA and um. You know surprised in the MAAA, everyone talks about the mystical MAAA. It's really about four people that are the MAAA, the president, the treasurer, the vice president, the secretary. I think that's about it. Most of the power in our flying association here in Australia is actually at state level. They've got voting rights. You know, the local, your local president has voting rights and all that kind of stuff. So the MAAA is really just an administration arm, and and they're doing their best. And, and they, you know, it, it's a really tough job because um, you have to deal with a lot of people complaining. Because there's a lot of whinges out there in aeromodelling land, which surprised me, since really we're just talking about a hobby. But the MAAA uh, did come out, gave an email out, uh, president put a message out there about uh, their stance on the whole COVID-19 thing, and basically what they're doing is following the government guidelines, which is what is suggested. And and uh, it was up to the flying clubs, their committees, their presidents, etc., to determine whether to continue with the flying activities or not, and Quite rightly, they've all pretty much shut down. And you know what? We're just going to have to suck it up. The way they look at this COVID-19 thing is we're all in it together. We'd all love to be flying and doing a lot of other things as well, but not to be at the moment. But here in Australia, the numbers are looking better. The curve is being flattened. So we should be out in a flying club, flying very soon, I predict. Oh, I reckon, I don't, don't hold me to this, but I, I give it a few more months and we'll be out. But then, of course, we'll be in winter. And if you live down here in Victoria, in Australia, like I do, Well, uh, not great in winter, Uh, unless we get a nice winter's day, bit of sun, light breeze, it's not too bad, but always a bit on the chilly side. But anyway, life keeps on rolling on. So stop bashing the MAAA. Now, product news. Uh, It's been interesting. I could think that at this point in time with not much happening out there due to the uh, COVID-19 outbreak that there wouldn't be many companies coming out with new products but there is one that caught my eye and being an aerobatics guy, uh, I do love an aerobatic plane and I have noticed that our friends out at Extreme Flight have a new plane coming, Jace the Ace Ducia. I, I I rate him as the number one freestyle pilot, aerobatic pilot in the in the world at the moment. He is an absolute gun, nice guy. Hope to get him onto the podcast at some point in time. But uh, there is extreme flight out of the US have a new aerobatic plane, 120cc class, extra NG. Now the extra NG is comes from the uh, the Walter Extra uh, business um, aerobatic planes. It's a full carbon plane so it just looks immaculate and of course uh, the guys at extreme flight have created a model based on it now extreme flight planes if you if you ne- if you don't know who they are they're really the pick of the bunch when it comes to bolsa aerobatic aircraft there's some other good brands out there such as a uh, pilot rc um, but extreme flight uh, are really doing sort of the best job out there at the moment with a lot of the others very very close but Extreme Flight is still considered to be one of the best, in, as far as quality, uh, led by uh, Chris Inson, who owns Extreme Flight, alongside Ben Fisher, who was X3 Hobby Shop, who I had some involvement with way back when. Uh, they've merged together, and so Ben was very involved, I think, in this design of the Extra NG. Now, I'm just reading some notes here on the plane. It's, it's, it's I think it's a, it's a 104 inch wingspan. Which is a common size wingspan for a lot of the Extreme Flight 100, 120cc aircraft. Now, um, what they do is Extreme Flight develop the design, the outer design of the plane. They know their airfoils, um, they've really refined their airfoils. So, um, Chris Hinson told me a few years ago when I met him in China that they've, they've got their wings sort of sorted. So, they know what works. Um, then, what they do is they give the design to their factory in China and they do a great job of working out how to build the thing. And what they're doing nowadays is using a lot of carbon uh, fiber, carbon fiber in their airframes to reduce the weight. But they don't want to get them too light, as Chris said to me one day. He said, oh, "We don't want to turn them into kites." So they're probably going to get they're, they're probably at their their minimum weight now, because any lighter it changes the performance of the aircraft, um, the way that it flies, the um, the momentum that it carries through some of the maneuvers that you want. So. Uh, Factory goes and makes one. They sent one through to Jace the Ace to go and test it. So basically, if he can break it, then um, they need to do more work. So he's the best guy to, to, to really prove these airframes because he's such an aggressive pilot that, you know, if the, the wind tube snaps, you know that something's wrong and you've got to improve the design. But the interesting thing is what I'm, I'm going to read some of the notes of what um, Ben Fisher, who designed this aircraft, said about this plane. Uh, now, quality's there, as I said, carbon, um, the finish of these planes is just phenomenal. When you you look at an extreme flight plane, you can see the quality. So Ben wrote this. he said, when I came on board about five years ago, the extreme Flight extra 300s were already well established and highly developed. so that, so Extreme Flight had these 104 uh, extras that were selling really well, and they still got their 104 extra and their, their V2 version of that. Um, they'd started developing a, a line of laser aircraft which uh, have been proven to be an excellent airframe, especially in the 100 size, 100cc size. And then they built a slick, a new slick, and that, was, that slick, um, I've been told, uh, was made for Jace the Ace. That he wanted something that was really aggressive, massive roll rate and all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, Ben goes on to say, um, I got to invest effort in the slicks and eventually all three lines were successful. So they had the extra line, the laser line, and then the slick. They all are broadly similar in focus but as now is well established the slick is slightly the best rotator. the extra is known for smoothness and the laser is the all-rounder. Jace ended up using the laser a lot last season as his competition choice for this reason and he won so that laser the 104 laser that extreme flight make with that 120 cc motor up front is a phenomenal airplane. I've met a number of pilots including last year when I went to China to the China top show aerobatic event. Um, the likes of Sasha Ciccone, Martin Brandmuller from Austria, the, you know, the Europeans guns, flew that laser and uh, said it was just phenomenal. It had a DLE 130 up front so plenty of grunt, a uh, little bit of extra weight, they had a lot of lead in the tail to, to balance it out to their liking but um, phenomenal airframe and, and personally I keep on saying to people if they're going to buy 100cc of that laser but So for the NG project, as Ben goes on and says, the brief was to push in the obvious direction, making an all-rounder, which would give up nothing to the slick for rotation and draw lines as well as the extra. Being a long extra shape, the NG is a good choice for lines. It has good side area, which is distributed well in the full scale design. So we could keep the look of the full size. So sometimes Extreme Flight have made planes that sort of haven't traditionally stuck to the exact scale looks of say an extra, but they designed it for know their flying performance but this one they've been able to keep it a bit more scale-like which which it does actually um so ben says for more average pilots like myself the important points about the ng is that it's very light which gives outstanding vertical on a 120 cc motor and it will do just fine on 100 cc if you've still got one of those lying around because really not many people are making 100 cc's anymore uh, one of the motors Jace has flown it on for testing was worn out and tied and flew very nicely on that. Now fresh motor is in number one, prototype number one. Uh, it's uh, easy and stable and Harrier, upright and inverted, very low coupling as people have come to expect. Uh, goes on to say that uh, it's really for a competition level pilot that wants a, an excellent freestyle aircraft, then this is a good option. Uh, Jace's feedback on this confirmed that the decisions we made in interpreting NG NG fused rudder a 35 percent exp were correct uh so yeah so they did some testing in china and it's it's not in production yet they're still doing some work but that is definitely a model to come to take a close look at uh the scheme that they've gone with is actually a real life scheme as well I noticed i went, I, I tried to research a plane because there's nothing on the extreme flight website about this it's really just a a youtube video of jace uh test flying the plane uh, at his private strip and uh, so, I had a look at that and yeah, it looked really, really impressive. But you know, all these, you give Jace a cardboard box to fly and he's going to make it look like a good flyer. So, I always say, yeah, give a good plane to a good pilot and they're going to make it look good. You've got to listen to what they say. And of course, if you can have a flyer, it's even better. But talking to these guys about the airframe and getting an understanding of how it performs is really good. So, you know, I talked about the the 104 inch laser and uh, Martin and sasha Ciccone having a fly of it and their feedback when it landed was it was just so it made everything easier uh, it was such an easy airframe to to uh, to fly the way that the tail could snap with this new style of aerobatic flying planes have had to adapt slightly they have had to drop the weight overpower them a bit more give really good elevator authority so they can snap that um, elevator down in some of the maneuvers and that's what the laser can do. So I tell you what, if I love extras personally, I've got quite a number of extras in my hangar. Uh, it's sort of my preferred shape of airplane for some reason I don't know. Uh, but I think one of it is I do like precise airframes. So that extra for me sounds like it's right on the uh, on the buzzer for me. The airframe, the, the color scheme has got silver in it. I'm not a big fan of silver covering on planes, but they do have an alternative scheme. That they're working on, which is a, a white and blue scheme. So, um, be interesting to see what that looks like in real life. So, keep an eye out for it. extreme flight. Planes are available he- available here in Australia through Desert Aircraft Australia. As uh, my computer buzzes, uh, get on to their website, Desert Aircraft. Uh, no, DA is it DA Australia. Gee, I should know this. Desert Aircraft. The guys at Desert Aircraft, Ian Howard, which I'm hoping to get in the show, uh, has been a great supporter of Flat Out RC. I'm just going to have a look at their websites so, on uh, yeah desertaircraft.com.au uh got a great type with desert aircraft engines so a da120 would go nicely in your extreme flight plane you can get all from ian ian and mark know their stuff up at da australia now i'm not just saying that because they did advertise in the flat-out rc magazine i buy a lot of stuff from them for my aircraft because they sell the good stuff and if you need advice they'll give you the right advice and that advice comes from years and years and years of supporting Giant-scale aerobatic uh, pilots, whether they be IMACAs or freestyle aerobatic guns or whatever, these guys have got the goods and got the planes. So definitely desertaircraft.com.au. It will be coming shortly. I reckon within the next six months, we'll see this extra NG just in time for the peak flying season here in Australia. So keep an eye out for it. The extra NG from Extreme Flight. Now, I've got a great guest that's going to join us shortly uh, on the FlatOut RC podcast. And before I forget, FlatOut RC podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, We're on Spotify. We are on SoundCloud. SoundCloud is free. Spotify, uh, you can get a subscription model or you have a subscription. Just check it out. Spotify podcast. Actually, there is a free version of Spotify. Uh, and of course, Apple Podcasts for free as well. If you're on an Apple device. Or on your computer, download iTunes, get involved with the Flatout RC podcast, and tell your mates, Flatout RC podcast. Now, getting on to our guest, the guest this episode is a man that I've known for some time now, and I know him as a guy that's like he, he's the ultimate toy guy. His name is Eddie Edwards. Eddie's been around in the model flying scene for a long time. He's the owner of uh, RC World down in Geelong here in Victoria. But Eddie has a long history in aero modelling dating back oh, many, many years. He competed at a, at a, a top level uh, for Australia in pattern aerobatics uh, through the 80s and has gone on to full-size flying, owns a couple of aeroplanes, uh, including an aerobatic plane, a Yak. And he's just an all-around great bloke, and he is the ultimate toy guy, and we're going to do it further when we have a chat with him. So please enjoy my discussion with the one and only, the man himself, the Toy Man, Eddie Edwards. Eddie Edwards, thanks for joining me. No worries, Andrew. Pleasure as always. Now, I am I have given you the title of the Toy Man, because for various reasons, and and it'll become apparent as we go along, but you've been an aero for, for many, many years now. Uh, how did you get into aeromodelling?
1: Well, my earliest memories of living um, pretty much involved aeroplanes right from the start. My mum tells me that whenever aeroplanes flew overhead, I used to yell and scream and she used to take me out there and, I could um, watch these things fly overhead. So yeah, from my earliest memories, I just always wanted to um, be involved in aviation. Um, probably my next earliest memories is reading through a set of encyclopedias that we had at the time, and um, finally finding a section on error modeling, and they spoke about or wrote about um these um uh, amazing materials called banana oil and balsa wood and things like that which thoroughly confuse me but next minute <clears throat> I'm um, primary school and I'm um, starting to learn a bit more about um, things in the world and I don't know when I actually started building and flying um, free flight gliders and so forth but <clears throat> probably around about 10 or something like that I know When I was 15, I got my first radio control model, which was a an Os Pixie single channel um, with a um, an Aeroflight um, trainer and a and a 40 size motor. Um, But prior to that, um, nearly forgot about my control line days. Golly gosh, how could I? What what year Um, are we
0: talking about here?
1: What, What year? Um, so I guess um something like um yeah what born in fifty two so yeah ten years old makes makes it around nineteen sixty two um one of the one of the most vivid memories I have of building free flight um gliders was spending spending time across, as always building and putting these things together and uh, tissue and dope and so forth, and I must admit, I'd built quite a few and got frustrated about, you know, some would fly well and others wouldn't. And, but I didn't know anything about trimming models apart from the very basics, like, you know, wing twisting and uh, maybe some, you know, center of gravity balancing and stuff, but still it was all, all a bit of a mystery to me. So some were disasters and some weren't, but this particular one was a towline glider. I can still remember it, you know, as if it was yesterday. Um, towed this thing up on a on a on a line, and um, probably got it to you know 100 feet or so like that. Pretty excited about that. Let it go, and um, immediately uh, went about hooking into a thermal and just disappeared and never saw it again. <laughs> So, Where were you flying? So I, I was elated on one hand and disappointed on the other. But oh, this was um, just down at the local, what we call used to call fifty-four acres. It was just like um, you know, a footy oval and a cricket oval and a couple of other bits and pieces. L- literally, literally, probably five hundred meters from home. You know, so um, and then I remember it heading off toward Geelong somewhere. But um, and then uh, control line, yeah, got into. Um, yeah, the, the Taipan trainers and the little two and a half Deezers I had a had a couple of my um, local buddies from Barn Heads actually had a shot at it as well. And we would go down to that local oval and um, fly control lunch, teach ourselves how to fly. Um, and um, did, did quite a bit of it, actually. Yeah, got into the built-up wing versions, uh, like AeroFlight Spitfires and um p40 warhawks and so forth um can't really i can't really remember um flying one of the little um, 049 things but i probably did where were you getting your your gear
0: from back then
1: (laughs) yeah there was some it would have been from bill phillips um, toys and cycles in geelong so um, I do remember going in there with my parents from time to time and, and, um, convincing them to let me go and have a, a look in the store there. And, and that's, yeah, basically that's, that's where all the equipment come from. And, and, and Bill, old Bill was great. He, um, you know, passed on a lot of information and helped me out as a, as a traditional hobby shop owner would have back in those days, but, um, yeah. Now yeah.
0: What I want to, I want to ask you about single channel radio control, cause you mentioned you got into it. I, I just cannot yeah. understand how you could fly a radio-controlled
1: plane with single control. What was it like? I know, and um, you're right, and and it was wasn't easy. It basically, it's a, a free-flight model, so it, it has to be trimmed to fly pretty much straight and level before you've got any hope um, of controlling it with a single-channel radio control system control system you have no elevator control okay so all you've got is rudder left and right and I did have the optional extra of a third um, control with a second servo which gave you a rotating engine or throttle setting so it would go from low medium high then back to medium then the low then back to high again so it was just you know, rotating around. So if you wanted to get from uh, low throttle to full throttle, you have to go through the medium setting first. So one press was left and it was just full left rudder, two presses that went left first and then stuck on the right-hand rudder. And then when you press it three times, it would go left rudder, right rudder, and then cycle the throttle survey through one third of the um, travel. That's way so, too confusing um, for me. I, I too was, confusing. Oh, that's too many buttons yeah. to remember to press. I know, I know, and consequently, I had a, I had a handful of relatively successful flights. I, I had to have some, or well, I felt I needed some space, and I, and I did, um, you know, because I, I'd, I'd um, I was self-taught. I mean, up until that. Point the only contact I had with anybody else in the modelling, um, you know, knowledge or industry or had any knowledge at all was um, Bill Phillips at the local hobby shop. So I had no idea um, half the time uh, what was going on. Um, But um, I remember getting out the road to the swamp area, which had dried up and it left a nice big um, open dry clay pan. So my first flights were conducted out over the clay pan of the local swamp. What about landing one of those single channel planes? Yeah, it was just sort of, you know, trying to get it pointed back to you and just, yeah, throttling off and, and hoping for the best, really. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, so no, it, look, yeah, I, as I say, a, a couple of handfuls of flights and, and that was it, really. And um, uh, the next next um, memories, really, um meant, um, Barry Angus had set up his Geelong Toy and Hobby store in Geelong and um, started going there as well. And I worked there one Christmas holidays from school and earned enough money to buy a Mirko 61 twin plugger. And, um, and about that same time um, managed to buy a secondhand four-channel uh, craft radio system. And um, then started my way into multi-channel proportional radio control. Yeah. So, they're talking now late 60s or early
0: 70s now into full proportional radio control gear?
1: Yeah, look, that's right. I would have been probably 16, 17 by then. So, yeah, yeah, probably... um, Probably barely the seventies, late sixties, um, early seventies. You're right. Yeah. I've got a, a bunch
0: of magazines from the the mid sixties to the early seventies, and they're full of ads for radio control gear. And yes. I just wonder what was it like when proportional radio control gear came in. So you, now you could move from the single channel to full proportional control. Like, mm. what were you thinking at that point in time?
1: Um, Pure magic. I had been aware of and knew of um, the reed systems that were around and I'd watched quite a few guys um, uh, flying with reed systems, which is basically quite a big box with a bunch of switches. And and, uh, the main difference was that to the single channel, uh, instead of having one switch to do everything, you had a a switch which would operate left rudder, another switch would operate uh, right rudder. And they had multi-channel, so you could have another switch for up elevator and another switch for down elevator. So you had Mm -hmm. to move from switch to switch, and there was no proportionality. So if you hit the up elevator switch, uh, it just went to full up, and then when you let it go, it went back to neutral again. And the same thing you could have ailerons as well, um, so you know it was pretty whiz bang but i i never I never got to own one of those um, basically went straight into the proportional and and yeah you're right. I mean uh, that was big news in the day for sure uh, in, in the hobby, no doubt about that.
0: So obviously you were quite active in in flying um, which led you into the area of aerobatics. Uh, how did you end up? flying aerobatics
1: yeah well look um essentially trouble is when i turned um 17 and nine months i um i was able to get a motorbike license and um, um and um yep you guessed it so it was pretty much the end of modeling um for some years um Everything, you know, mo- motorcycling and um and chasing women consumed me for for some time. So, essentially, I had a hi- hiatus away from modelling for what say something like between 18 and and 24 really. So that was a six year um, um holiday from aeromodelling. Um, but then um then I got married. Found a girl of my dreams, if you like, and um, sold my motorbikes, um, which I eventually brought back again, but that's another story. Yeah. And um, and yeah, got, got bored. So I thought, yep, okay, this is it. Back in the era modeling again. And um, and it was full on. I mean, I was full on into motorbikes and pretty much anything I do, but um, yeah, so from then on, it was um, all consuming uh, to get to get into the era modeling scene. I was working as a land surveyor in those days in Geelong, and um, Barry Angus had set up his uh, craft systems business in Belmont, in Geelong, and um, I used to buy all my gear from there and um, spend a lot, quite a bit of time in there, obviously. And um, so I I think I had a Craft 7C, which is a um, seven channel proportional radio system of the day and um, started getting into um, the 61 two stroke powered rocket ships, which um, is known as classic pattern today. So um, things like Ivan Christensen Saturn powered by a Rossi 60 on a Tune pipe and a ten and a half, seven wooden zinger prop doing a minimum of probably uh 14, RPM on the ground. Otherwise, they'd um you know not going hard enough. And um, yeah, so aerobatics was my thing. I don't know why it happened to be that way, but um I just appreciated the the skill and also admiring Barry Angerson, John McGrain and Norm Morris and those guys, you know, flying just um Attracted me to that um, part of the hobby if you like and um and then went from there
0: now you obviously competed a fair bit uh, which locally and then obviously led to your international career flying and pattern competitions uh, tell me a bit yeah. about about those those competition days and and the international travel and um, and competing overseas. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, look, all pretty exciting for me. Um by then I'd been flying um you know at, at, with Barry and and the craft team uh, for a couple of years, a few years basically and um and then Barry offered me a job uh, to work at Craft Systems, so that was um uh, a done and dusted deal, you know, the opportunity to work in your hobby was um, too, too much to resist. And um, had a couple of great years um, there and learning a lot and, and going to competitions with, with Barry as well, the craft masters. That's how it all started off those early days. Now, unfortunately, Barry died suddenly of a heart attack one day and we're all devastated, of course. Um, the business got sold on and um, although the craft the craft business itself carried on for some years uh, under Eddie Lowe's um, guidance and so forth. but um, So I just kept um, competing and practising and, and, as you say, doing the local competitions. In fact, um, I'm in my workshop now and I'm just looking at some of the old um, trophies and plaques and stuff. Okay, back in 1977, I won first place at the Victorian championships in sportsmen the following year in 1978 i won first place in the advanced class at the australian Patent association national championships and um yeah can't find any others but i i you know i i guess i made a, a fairly um and I wouldn't call it meteoric necessarily, but um, uh, uh, a fast-paced um, you know, rise through the ranks. Um, I mean, the closer you get to the top, the, the everything slows down, of course. Um, but I was again, you know, very, very determined and. And um very, very addicted to it. So I just kept building and, and flying and building and flying. I started designing my own models. So I'm not long after that. And that was the start of the, the Javelin series, in which I think there was eight um, different models in that range. And, um, and then um, 1989, I made it onto the Australian team to go to Pensacola, Florida. So it's myself, Tom Prosser, and um, oh, yeah, I forgotten the other guy's name, but I do know him, of course. I'm just bad with names. Um, so, yeah, off to um, um, the USA, Florida, with the – drag the family along as well, uh, make it a, a full-on family outing, and that was um, fantastic.
0: How many times did you compete for Australia? Ten – it
1: look. Basically, it was 10 years and being held every second year. So I did five, I believe, world championships. But the off years, um, I competed overseas um, in the off year every year. And um, that would either be the Trans-Tasman Series, which I won every one of those that I entered, and high scored every one of those I entered. Um, also did a um, two, I think, um, American Nationals. I actually placed seventh overall at the Virginia AMA Nats, um, and that was behind Chico Somanzini, um, Ivan Christensen, and a few other of the top international guys. So that was probably one of my best ever results.
0: Really what you're saying is that when it comes to competitive pattern flying, You've actually been one of the top Australian pilots out there.
1: Yeah, look, I was pretty much, if we had kind of a ranking system. So probably for those um, eight to 10 years, I would have been ranked number one. I occasionally I got knocked off um, Chrissy White and Pete uh, Goldsmith and um, Tom Prosser. Uh, Ted Rivett even going back in the early days. I, I got beaten occasionally, but not a lot. <laughs> How much practice were you doing? Not a great deal because um, by that stage, um, I mean, going back to my life history, um, I left craft after a couple of years and um, then met up with Doug Dorrit and we formed a partnership essentially and brought a toy shop in Geelong Um, and the intention was to put hobbies in there, which we did. And um, so that went on as a partnership for a few years, and then I ended up buying Doug's half back off him. So um, during those times, I was running my own business um, and trying to grow the grow the toy shop and and the hobbies were quite an important part of that business as well so I didn't get a lot of chance to practice often I'd um, go down and have a three or four flights um, before I'd go to work and so forth especially if there was a big event coming up but if there wasn't much happening I, I basically could only get out on the weekends I one lucky thing for me is that I had kind of my own private flying field, which was about um, two or three kilometres from home. It was just a farmer's paddock that I used to, um, you know, um, rent off him, so to speak. Not a lot of money, but used to look after him and and be nice to them and so forth. So um, that was the, the good part was that I had somewhere where, I could, if I had an hour to spare, I could get out and I could do three or four flights and back home again. But the bad part about it, that was that i had no one helping me i had to do it all on my own there was nobody critiquing me and um and and i learned a lot of bad habits habits Uh, i used to say you know i could impress the local cows down there but the other thing i would do is practice my mistakes until they were perfect Um, but um so consequently i moved around or or entered and, and and flew in a lot of competitions and um I made a point of, um, you know, talking to the judges and talking to other people and and asking and and getting advice on how I could improve things and so forth. So uh, that was um, an essential part of um, getting better at what I what I did and wanted to do.
0: Well, you've mentioned that you you started a, a toy shop in Geelong and that uh, era modeling played a part in, in that business as well. And that business still continues today under the name RC world out in Geelong and uh, it, it, it's a, it's a proper hobby store I say RC world because you've got a bit of everything there you can buy bolster and glue and kits and ARFs and you name it you've you've got it now to, that's been running for quite some time uh, what are some of the changes that you've seen you know going back uh, you know the 30 years or so that you've been running that business versus today <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's actually 40 years Andrew um, Sorry, I didn't want to make you look that old <laughs> that's right yeah. oh golly gosh where does it go to anyway um yeah look it's it's such kind of a traditional toy and hobby shop um so um, I mean and the online part of the business the RC world part is been going probably for about 10 years now we're one of the early early ones to you know, get online but we're still a solid bricks and mortar business and um, although you know over the years especially has been radio control aircraft helicopters and cars we we've, we've always uh, maintained good stocks of plastic kits and, and as you say bolster and building materials and accessories in the um um, and look, the hobbies changed um, massively in those forty years. Um, the early days, we were just seeing nice, nice, steady growth. Um, you know it was a good industry to be in. Um, the technology kept getting better and better, and there was always something new and better to buy. and um, and you know people in society you know were looking for these kind of outlets um, from work and so forth. so the the hobby, business has been good to us um there's no question about that over the years we we uh, eventually went into importing and distributing and um we've been um australian agents for some of the major overseas you know manufacturers for you know nearly 40 years like ys and cool power and so forth but um but yeah, look, there has been a lot of changes in the last last ten years. It's changed dramatically, and unfortunately, it hasn't been a good change. the The industry is shrinking, and it's a worldwide phenomenon, not just in Australia. Um, and uh, I can only I can only you know think that it's a change in society. Uh, people don't seem to want to learn how things work anymore uh, they don't want to spend time building things as much as they used to it's sort of more instant gratification now I and mean, we obviously moved from boxes of balsa bits you know make your own aircraft to the arf movement and that was very strong and that that probably you know kept the hobby going f- a- a- and and active for quite some years. Uh, people were getting less and less time, um, had less time on their hands. So that worked well. And um, and yeah, that was a, a major point, a portion of the industry, if you like and but even since then it's um you know we've we've gone to the electrics and the foamies and so forth we were hoping that they would rejuvenate the industry but they haven't really so and unfortunately yeah the the hobby is um shrinking in size as as is a number of hobby shops around australia which is um a shame and it's um it, it's it's sad to see a hobby that you know i was almost almost around when it you know started and i'm I'm kind of um looking at its um slow um, not so sure there's a demise at all, but it's um definitely slowing down and less popular for sure. Yeah, I think uh, anybody else that's been in the industry would
0: um would agree with you. And we see it at hobby clubs as well, the numbers are dropping, but you know, as long as there's a few of us still going out there and enjoying ourselves, there'll be some sort of industry, but may not be as lucrative as it was as what it used to be. Now I want to move on because not only have you had this this great career in uh modeling, you've you've also moved into full size flying as well and I always find that quite tr- intriguing when an aeromodeler moves into full size flying and and I've seen your aircraft you own a couple of aircraft uh how did when did the full size flying come into into your life as soon as i could afford it
1: um, it's something I'd always wanted to do is fly full size. I'd, you know, been driving past the local airport for years and, um, just dreaming of the day and, um, yeah, um, you know, all that work and effort um, building the business up finally paid off. And, um, when I turned around about 40, I said to myself, well, okay, I reckon I can afford it now and it's time. So, um, my focus moved away from error modeling to full-size aircraft. There's no question about that. Um, I rocked up out of the local flying field and um, saw the local instructor there, who I had known previously, and said to Barbara, it was a she at the time, which was great. And um, I said, Barbara, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to learn to fly. She said, Oh, great, Eddie. Um, you know, when do you want to start? And I said, Well, now. And um, so that was it. It was a lovely day. We basically um, did a bit of a, a preamble and went out to the aeroplane and had my first lesson. What pl- what kind of plane? It was a Cessna 172. Okay. So, um, yep, and hooked ever since. So I think I started um, my first lesson in June. I can't remember the year now, but it's been about 27 years ago now. And um, – So first flying lesson in June, I had my private license. I think about four months later, I'd brought my first airplane in November of that same year. Um, It was a Cessna 182RG, which is a retractable four-seat version. And um, and, uh, a year later, I had my instrument rating and night rating. And um, then I was, you know, running out of things to learn to do. So I thought, yep, okay, it's time to do some aerobatics. And um, as it happened and what kind of really precipitated was the uh, uh, decathlon came down to Barnheads Heads um, for the first, for summer. And um, I did my aerobatic endorsement rating and that. Um, didn't think initially that I was cut out for it because, um, you know, I used to, we'd do half an hour of, um, of, of you know, basic aerobatic stuff. and. Um, I was starting to feel pretty crook by the end of that half hour, but the instructor was really good and he said, no, you're actually doing okay and things will get better, um, which they eventually did. Um, so then that aeroplane went away and um, I was having um, uh, withdrawal symptoms. So I joined the aerobatic club and I used to fly my Cessna over to Morbin, and then jump in the um, two-seat um, pits special a you know, club ran over there and um started um, learning to fly the pit special and and, and uh, learning more about aerobatics in that and that became um, not so much a chore but it was it was difficult to to fit flying in it was essentially a whole day out of my working um, week if you like because i was you know pretty much working seven days a week off and on so I thought, well, if this, if this is going to continue, I'm going to have to buy my own aerobatic airplane or else um, give up on the idea of trying to rent airplanes off people. And um, looking through um, various magazines and so forth, um, I saw a picture of a Yak-55. Now, I'd seen Nigel Arnett flying his Sukhoi SU-26 down at um, Tasmania Air Races. And was just blown away with uh, the presence of, of these big radial-powered Russian airplanes. Were and um, there was no way I could afford a Sukhoi, but um, these Yak's were about um, you know eighty or ninety percent performance of a Sukhoi and about sixty percent of the price. So. Um, started doing my research and there was a guy called Nigel Arnold up in Camden in New South Wales had uh, contacts with the Russians and um, we struck a deal and we imported a a Yak-55 into the country and um, painted it and repainted it went through it serviced it put it together and um, and that was it yeah finally owned owned an aerobatic airplane it was a a year from when I paid my deposit roughly until I was able to actually fly it. So it was a, a long wait, but I've learned to be patient.
0: You've still got that plane?
1: Still have that plane. It's um yeah, I just love it. Um I've had over six hundred and fifty flights on it now. And it's been probably the most reliable airplane I've owned. <laughs> um and of course, um, no question, first thing I want to do is um wanted to, you know, compete in competition aerobatics, so uh, jumped into that big time and won the 2004 and 2005 Victorian and New South Wales State Aerobatic Championships. And, um, yeah, so um, I don't fly as much these days, um, but I still love it. I haven't competed for a while now because it's such a big um, commitment um, in time and effort and so forth, but I'm, I'm just flying it now and enjoying it.
0: Now I've visited your hangar down at uh, Bowen Heads, where you—it's it, really the ultimate man cave. Your your hangar down there, it is a phenomenal place to go and visit. And you have a lot of toys. And what I mean by toys, you've got cars and motorbikes and planes and you know your racing simulator and it, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where do you find the time to do all of this? Because it it fascinates me how many things you're involved in. And when I mean involved in it's not just a little bit it's it's a fair bit of commitment that you've made to the different hobbies that you've been involved in how do you do Mm, it
1: yeah i don't i don't lucky for me i've never needed a lot of sleep um so you know my typical work day back in the in the days was um you know do a normal day's work and then come home have a meal watch an hour of tv and then um get back onto the computer and work till midnight again, and then get up next morning and do it again. Um, And, um, and in weekends, of course, yep. They started to free up for me. I said, look, yep, don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to concentrate getting older and need to spend more time on my hobbies but I have I have um enlisted help from you know other guys from time to time I mean I mean Bobby Hurst um when I was you know competing seriously in modeling he used to do a lot of work on the airplanes probably about 60 percent because again I didn't have the time and um, spend it with work but um yeah look it's you're right it's interesting I, I guess I I don't do much else, I suppose I work, and i um um yeah do things and make things and 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 try things out, so yeah, just and i'm i can't I've never been one to sit down and read a book or watch tally for any more than fifteen minutes or half an hour I get jittery, yeah,
0: I'm similar, <laughs> I'm similar in the same same kind of fashion, I think most <laughs> what I've noticed is that aeromodellers modelers were all wired in a similar kind of way, we all like either uh, boats or cars or motorbikes or fishing and it's we're tinkerers, and we have to keep on tinkering if we're not tinkering then we're extremely bored and not fulfilled so we'll find something else a new hobby to fill a void so I think you know that's something that we can all, all relate to now you've got RC World running online you've got Tate's Toys and Hobbies at the physical store down there in Geelong that uh, you can grab all your aeromodelling gear from now where do you where where do you see aero modeling going in the years to come?
1: Yeah, I wish I knew, but my best guess is that it will continue probably along the lines of it is now. I I, I think we've hit the hit the bottom of the curve and um I live in hope that the that we, um, you know, the curve lifts again, and we get some higher participation. Um, but um, I, I'm seeing a bit of a, a bit of a, a resurgence in the plastic kits again from the, you know, the teenage kids and so forth, and their dads again. Um, the cars are starting to, I see, cars um, are starting to maybe lift a bit again. We see a bit of a a movement back to the old Tamir retro kind of um, cars again, uh, sand scorches and and the rest of them. Um, And the good thing about them is they're they're good quality and you have to build them. And and believe it or not, people are starting to go back to those sort of products. So there's hope yet for sure. Yeah.
0: Now, final question is a question that I'm going to try to ask everybody. And that is, all your times in aeromodelling, flying model planes. What has been your favourite plane?
1: As a model, well, I'd have to say my the latest, the last iteration of my Javelin series of Javelin eights. Um, it was a it was a lovely aeroplane to fly. There's no question about that. And um, I did produce some basic kits. Uh, so there's been been quite a few um, other. You know, modelers who had built them, and I've only ever got good comments back. I'm not saying they were the, the best by any means, but they were a good, a good, um, straight, solid aircraft, and there's no no doubt that that helped me. Um, you know, in my quest, if you like, um, and the piloting skills are still the the, the key to it. But um, you know, having a good a good airplane. Certainly helps. It's it's very different now. F3AG. I mean, nobody builds their own airplanes anymore, and you can you can buy the the same airplane essentially that won the last world championships, and you can have one of those and fly them. There, we could never do that. Um, so um, it, it's probably more about piloting skills nowadays than what it used to be. But um, yes, yeah, so I reckon the old good old Javelin range, series, uh, probably. Uh, probably developed over you know 10 odd years really yeah trying lots of different things cutting cutting stabs out and changing them and gluing them back in again and seeing what difference it made so yeah it's good fun
0: well Eddie you're a legend you're I've I have flown with Eddie and Eddie I can tell you is a gun pilot and he doesn't get out that often uh, on the sticks anymore but I'll tell you what when you do he's still a master it's really great to hear your story. I've now, I know now know your whole history. So next time I see you, I see you. I'm going to see you in a different light. So yep. <laughs> really appreciate uh, your support of Flatout RC over the years. You've advertised in the magazine, and wish you all the best in your future endeavors. And I'm sure there's going to be many. So thanks a lot, Eddie.
1: Yeah, you're welcome, Andrew. And um, the best to you too. And you keep up the good work, um, trying to keep the the hobby alive as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eddie. Cheers.
0: As always in this podcast, we want to feature a product. Uh, that's, that we love hearing about error modeling products. Well, you know, we know we can't fly so at the moment, but let's talk about products. So uh, there's a product that I want to talk about, which... Um, I formed the basis of a series of articles that uh, I wrote for Flatout RC magazine when it was going. Uh, I approached Mike O'Reilly from Model Flight and I said to him, Hey, Mike, I've got an idea of doing a couple of articles, like a two part story on getting into gases, getting into gas powered aeroplanes. And I said, I'd love to use the Hangar 9 Ultra Stick 30cc as the basis of that article. And he said, Sound like a great idea. And he sent me over a kit. Um, Everyone thinks that, oh, it's great. You have a magazine, you get freebies. I've got a free airframe. Yeah, but then I have to buy the motor and the servos and the receiver and all that. And uh, I, I never skimp. Like when I, when I build aeroplanes, I don't put rubbish gear in them. I'm not going off and finding the cheapest servo that I can put into an airframe. Reason being is I want it to, I want it to be reliable. I want it to last. I don't want to have to worry about it. I fly model aeroplanes for fun. If I go and put rubbishy gear in it that I'm worried that it might let go any minute now, then that's attracting from my fun. I'm not going to have 30 aeroplanes in my hangar. I'd rather have less, but make sure that what I've got is really, really good and that I'm going to enjoy those planes. So Mike sent over this Hangar 9 Ultra Stick 30cc. I bought the gear for it. Um, I put in an OSGT33 gas motor, which I got... um, from model flight i bought uh, some dual sky servos there was one high-tech server that i had on my shelf that i could use which i think i used on throttle and again good high-tech servo so i ended up going with dual sky now dual sky servos um is something that i've really been playing around with a fair bit i'm just putting some into a jet as well i know the owner of dual sky orville shang over in uh, shanghai visited the factory jump online you'll see the tour that i did of how they make dual sky uh motors on the flat out RC tube channel but Getting back to this Hangar 9 Ultra stick. So um, we all know what a stick is. Uh, They've been around for years. The the history of a a stick was that they were built uh, as a test bed for testing radio control gear by, I think it was Kraft. I think it was Kraft. But someone will correct me if I'm wrong. But from memory, I think it's Kraft radios built this. They needed a platform that they could, if they crashed, they could easily build another one. And the stick became that platform. And the thing was, it actually worked out to be a really nice flying plane. So over the years, when you go to your local flying club, someone's going to have a stick of various sizes. I've seen massive sticks with, you know, 40cc and up sort of motors down to small sticks. I've got a... Actually, the first model aeroplane that I flew was a one-meter wingspan electric-powered stick. Uh, There was a guy at my flying club that was scratch-building these. Actually, I own it. Funny story. I know I'm going off track, but... Um, my good mate, Dave, David Shearer, who's a, he's a legend of a bloke, uh, I went to this flying club. I said, I fly in mode two. And they said, look, we've got nobody here that flies mode two except that guy, Dave. And they pointed me to Dave. And Dave said, yeah, no problem. And he said, oh, do you reckon you can fly? And I said, oh, I've been flying on the simulator for years, but I've never really flown the real thing. So he goes, okay, well, let's see how you go. So he's flying this stick around, one meter wingspan. So it was pretty small, really. And he handed me his controller. And he took off, and he was mid-circuit. And there I am, hands it over, and I'm flying circuits. No problem. He said, well, see if you can land it. I come in, and I land straight away, down the center line of the strip. He goes, well, take off. And I took off again, did some more circuits. He said, okay, land it again. And I landed it, and handed, the, handed the transmitter over at the end of the flight. I said, that was awesome. I said, what plane's that? He said, it's a stick. It's a one meter. It was built by this bloke over here, and uh, it's unbelievable. Anyway, I ended up buying that plane. Actually, my brother's got it. Uh, and it's phenomenal. So a great... Um, platform that it, it's, it could be considered a trainer plane, but they're, they're very aerobatic. They, they really will excel at doing some some aerobatic maneuvers. Maybe not full 3D, but they're quite aerobatic. So this hangar Nine Ultra Stick is, is a variation on that stick theme. Uh, the, the, the real variance really, from a design perspective, is the tail. It's a more conventional looking tail than a, a rounded kind of tail. It's got a nice uh, white and green color scheme. Now, I built that plane. I uh, had a little bit of help with my, my good mate, Ido Segev, who most of us know has passed on, but he really enjoyed flying this plane and uh, building this plane. When I told him that I was getting this, this stick, he was over the moon. Now, this is a guy that won the European Extreme Flying Championship event in 2011, flying massive krill composite aircraft and whatever, but he was genuinely excited about Flying this I'll just stick and said to me I have to fly it I'll maiden it I want to test it and I went yeah no problem you're the man because he was my go-to test pilot anyway uh, so he came to my house you know, he lived near me and we would work on this aeroplane and you know put the motor on and all that and it went together really really well so uh, it wasn't a daunting build it actually was very similar to building a, a, a traditional trainer plane uh, ARF kit quality was pretty good uh, a couple of things uh, you know, I would have liked to see a bit better, but it, it's a solid, solid aeroplane. I didn't see any sort of weak spots. Um, you know, I was a little bit concerned reading some reviews about the tail area and, and the tail fin and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't have any any problems with the plane at all. So I purposely built it using all the gear that was supplied with the kit because some people like to upgrade their linkages and all that kind of stuff, but I went, nah, I'm going to build it as per the book. And uh, I did. So build was uh, was drama free, went together really well, and it actually was quite a neat build. All the servos are within the fuselage, you know, old school. You don't know, put them out, you know, in the rear of the the fuselage or anything like that. You've got uh, a full house plane. Really, it's got um, flaps, which I love having flaps on a plane. Like it just broadens the flight envelope straight away. So flap enabled plane. Um, so you need eight servos, I think it was in total. Two, uh, one for each aileron, uh, one each flap. Then you had two or one on the elevator. I think it was one on the elevator. No, sorry, two on the elevator, one on the rudder. Um, now I had an I had eighteen kilo servos running in full high voltage. I'm a big fan of running lipo batteries in my planes Uh, because I can check them, monitor them, charge them quickly, all that kind of stuff. So I like running high voltage, plus that also gives me the best performance out of the servos. So I go full HV around the whole thing and I always use digital servos as well because there's nothing worse than a servo that doesn't perform well. As as the great man Ede Segev used to say to me, he goes, Andrew, I don't understand how people can buy an airframe and then put really bad servos in it. So that good airframe can actually become a bad airframe because of the servos that you're using are no good. He said, when you think about it, the only connection between you and the airplane are the servos. So when you have fast servos that center really well, your whole flying experience is going to be better. So I follow that and I buy good servos and these dual skies really were great. So it went together well. Uh, I started with a Falcon 20 by six carbon prop that I had lying around, but uh, felt that, no, I think Edo flew it. The test flight, because the photos that we have in the magazine has that prop on it. And the problem that I had with the plane is that when it was up off the tail, wheel, so it is a tail dragger, uh, when it was up on its main wheels, the clearance between the prop and the ground was literally like a centimetre. Now, Ito said he was a gun pilot. He wasn't going to have an issue. So I remember after we test flew the plane, I changed the prop to a smaller prop. Uh, it was like a 19 by 12 or an 18 by 12 or something like that. I went to a wood falcon prop I got from DA Australia. Uh, and put that on it just to give myself some extra clearance Edo actually felt that the 20 by 6 was too much prop for the plane uh so he wanted higher rev so propping it down helped a bit Edo tuned the engine it, it was to be honest we had a couple of issues early on with the os it probably took around five flights for it to settle down don't know why um but it took about five flights we were having this problem that every time we flew the plane and landed it it needed to be retuned but uh after after i got some fuel through it gee it was it was it was great um they do start backwards. These OS 33 engines do have a tendency to start backwards. And I was daunted by that. But really, it's a non-event kind of thing. Um, it Pretty much every time I started the motor, it would start backwards. But you give it another quick flip and uh, it'll be okay. Now, Brian Winch, another another guy that's passed, uh, he told me that the, the timings were advanced on these OS motors. They've got plenty of grunt, but the timing is quite advanced. and That's why sometimes I'll run backwards. But they don't run backwards for long. I've got a kill switch, kill it. Flip it and off you go. So how does it fly? The flying of it was um I was really keen to give this plane a go because I wanted something that was sort of a no-fuss plane. You know, when you've got that plane where it's just a no-fuss plane and it's going to be a reliable workhorse. And, you know, if you don't want to think too much or, you know, you just want to go and have a, a an easy, relaxing day at the field, there's that model that you go to in the snow, it's gonna be fine. And that's what that st- the stick was for me. And I always like something that's a bit aerobatic, so I could muck around with it, flying some aerobatics. I could fly it slow under flaps, you know, trundle around on a club day with the other sticks, doing circuits, whatever. It was just an all-round uh, fun machine kind of thing. So Edo put it through its paces and his feedback uh, was that um, he really enjoyed the plane. He thought he, the roll rate he was good for what it is. It's not like a 3D plane uh, that could roll faster. You can set up this Ultra Stick with... The flaps also working in conjunction with the ailerons. And to be honest, I couldn't work it out on my radio system. I kept on trying and I had it all going all over the place. You can really muck around with it because the way that they've hinged the flaps, they will go up and down. So you can have crow setups, you know, like glider guys do. You can have all these things going on. So with full span ailerons, you're definitely going to increase the roll rate. But you definitely feel the weight. You know, it's a 205 centimetre wingspan, 1.88 centimetre, uh, sorry, 1.8 eight, eight metre length fuselage. So it's quite a big airframe. And I felt that it wasn't as nimble, say, as my other 30cc aerobatic, dedicated aerobatic planes. It's a little bit heavier. Weighs in around the 6.35 kilo mark. So that's probably oh, a kilo heavier than my other 30cc planes. Of course, that kilo is going to make a really big difference. Landing it was a breeze. Uh, it's got this massive, generous wing. Like the, the wing loading is, uh, you know, really low. Uh, great for that slow flight. Handled wind fine. Flew it in a few windy days. Um, and not an, not a bad plane at all. So the question was, is this a good plane for you know, your first foray into gas motors? And the answer is definitely... It is a seriously good plane for getting into gases. Like I wish actually this was my first gas plane because one thing that I really enjoyed is the no fuss engine mounting. Four bolts, engines in, it's an open engine, no cowl. You don't have to worry about cooling. If you need to tune it, it's easy to get to. Plumbing it all up is really easy. There's plenty of space in the airframe. There's plenty of space for your servos. It's a a clean install. Even the setup at the field is not that hard because it's a one-piece wing. No, sorry, it's a two-piece wing, but it's, it's a high wing, which is funny on a stick because it really hasn't got a lot of fuselage, so it's almost a mid-wing, but it's, it's a high wing. Anyway, uh, it's got a big aluminium wing tube, uh, nice and solid, and basically I think there was one bolt to put the wing on for memory. I can't remember, but uh, I think there is just one bolt, plastic bolts. could be two of them. I think there's two of them. Uh, yeah, there's two. Um so easy to set up at the field. Uh, and as I said, no fuss, gasser plane. So would I recommend it as a first gasser? Hell yeah, the price point is really good. It represents really good value for money. Um, if I just go into model flight now, uh, bear with me as, as I jump online. Uh, model flight. and We'll have a look at uh, the ultra stick here. I'll give you a price. Now, you've got to remember that with any gas build, you need to buy all the components. And as I said, if you're going to put rubbishy gear in there, you'll end up with a rubbishy plane. But if you, if you go with something that's half decent, okay, airframe, $550. All right, that's what we're looking at, ballpark. Available all around Australia through a lot of hobby stores. But $550 Aussie dollars for a pretty neat airframe you're really not going to get a 30 cc size airframe we're talking about two meter wingspan here so it gives you a lot of presence in the air can handle a bit of wind you know that six kilo mark bit over six kilos it's going to penetrate a bit of wind it's a pretty sleek fuselage now i actually just uploaded a video to the flat out rc youtube channel which is the great man ito segev talking about the hangar nine ultra stick after he flew it so what i used to do is he'd fly the plane he'd land it i'd get my phone out and i'd record him talking about the airplane so i had notes to write an article and i got the um approval from his family to to share those so i got more coming so definitely subscribe to the flat out rc youtube channel and hear the great man Ido segev Talking about some of these aircraft that he tested, and, and the thing is amazing. Like you know, the reason why everyone loved Ido was that he was so positive, and you can hear him talk about these airplanes. And even when he's talking about a bit a, a thing that he didn't enjoy, it still has got this positivity in his voice. So we miss him dearly, but we can still hear him. So I've got more coming, but the Hangar Nine Ultra Stick Thirty CC video is actually up online. So jump onto the Flat RC YouTube page, and you can see that. So. Model Flight is the place to go or any other good hobby store can get these planes in for you. It's a great stick. You can set up as a glider tug. Um, People have put bigger motors on them. Uh, You can run a variety of different brands, including the Evolution motor that that Horizon Hobby have. A DLE 35 would be great. The RCGF 35 would be an awesome uh, uh, motor for this. Even the RCGF 40 CC, -er, like a twin um, the DLE twin, the 40, the DA35, all these uh, plane, all these mo- uh, sorry, motors will bolt on and you can also set it up as an electric uh, as well. Um, there is room to put batteries and all that kind of thing. So go and take a look. Hang on, Ultra stick 30cc. You want to get into gases, this is the go-to plane. Give it a go. About to leave, already packed come with me i'm not really asking we'll get away to a place where we don't know well that's about all we have for you this week this episode of flat out rc podcast don't forget to jump online and subscribe to this podcast let's try to build it up uh i got lots more people coming i've been lining up a few interviews uh with some international guests so reaching out across the network to to bring the stories from from the hobby out to you uh by all means if you've got some feedback for us love to hear it uh send us an email get, get online flatoutrc.com.au and you can see a contact form there send us some info, send us uh what you want, want to hear or any feedback on the podcast what you'd like us to cover and don't forget subscribe to our facebook instagram and youtube channel youtube jump on board to the youtube channel because what we do on youtube is going to be different what i'm trying to do is have different content for the different platforms so the instagram has been firing i'll tell you what the upside of this COVID 19 stuff is that my Instagram account is going crazy. Jump on board, sharing a lot of the photos that I've taken over the time. Uh, now again, we do the Instagram story thing as well. So plenty of you, plenty of options for you to get your aero modeling fix even when we can't go out and fly. So thanks for joining me. Thanks to the great man, Ido Segev, for helping me out with the hangar nine review. Thank you to Eddie Edwards, the toy man, Really appreciate you jumping on board and I hope you enjoyed the discussion we had with him. So till next time, keep on smiling and keep on building whilst we can. Before you know it, we'll be out flying. See you later.